0: the people of God in exile. Ezra, I think we are probably divided on our experience of our experience of this word, exile. For some of us, we don't really know what this means. I mean, we know what it means, we know the words, but we don't really know what it means to be in exile. And for others, we know right away the experience of being on the outside, when we have lost our sense of place, of belonging. Some of us have never known what it really meant to belong. Exile can be generational, the loss of validity and belonging carried along by our story or family so long that it feels just like the norm. For many, it's woven into the fabric of our lives, so much so that we take it for granted. Of course we don't belong. Of course we live by a different set of rules, unspoken rules, rules that shift like sand and yet remain as constant as iron. Right now there are thousands upon thousands who are finding themselves in exile as the tides of war have swept across the world in bloody chaos. Whatever your experience of it, exile, is as real today as it has ever been. Either way, whether we take exile for granted or we take its absence in our life for granted, the words of Cyrus are shocking. A reversal like this is rare, no unheard of in its sweeping scope. The words of Cyrus are not (laughs) padded political speech, they are earth-shaking in their conviction and their scope. Cyrus declares that the exiles, the people of Israel, is over. Their exile is done. Yet he doesn't stop there. He dives headlong into a course of restitution and reinstatement. It's utterly shocking. Find the survivors, pay them, restore them, restore the temple and the city. Ezra recounts this story. Thank you, Paulina, for reading it for us. Let's... Turn to Ezra chapter one and then we continue on from there. Ezra chapter one and verse one. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may their God be with them, and let them go up to Jerusalem in Judah to build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build a house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted with gold, silver, livestock and goods with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, King of Persia, had them brought out by Midradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the Prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. And other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these things along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, if you thought that was a lot, check out chapter two if we were going to read chapter two, right? Here we see this significance of what King Cyrus is doing. These exiles who have lived away from their central life, their community in Jerusalem, are now being invited back. For us to understand the significance of this, we would have to remember how core the temple was to the rhythm of life of the people of God. We have to imagine what it would be like to be cut off from the place where we found worship, where we found community, where we found support, where we offered offerings and were reminded of the salvation that we had in God alone. Well, perhaps after the pandemic, we can understand a little more how this felt. This next May, this May will be one year since we've been back in our sanctuary. For 19 months, our rhythm of life as a community and our connection with God and with each other looked very different than what it looked like before that. Fortunately, we weren't ripped away from our homeland and we didn't watch the complete destruction of the temple and then march off to a foreign place after watching perhaps some of our close friends and family killed. But what it's like to be cut off from life as a community, what it's like to be cut off from the ways in which you found to connect with God and other believers, we perhaps have a little better understanding of that now. The story states the beginning as in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Actually, this date should be identified a little differently as the first year Cyrus had authority over Babylon and Judah, 539 B.C. We know about Cyrus from several ancient sources, but one of them is invaluable, the Cyrus Cylinder. This is a small clay cylinder that was found by archaeologists. We hear about Cyrus, including portions of his own memoir. He recounts that the Babylonian god, Marduk, was displeased with how he had been worshipped. And I quote, So he scanned and looked through all the countries, searching for a righteous ruler willing to lead him, that is Marduk. Then he pronounced the name Cyrus, king of Anshan, and declared him to become the ruler of the world. The cylinder relates how Marduk helped Cyrus to become successful and ultimately helped him overthrow Babylon without resistance. Then Cyrus speaks, introducing himself in this way. Oh, so humbly. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, legitimate king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, and Akkad, king of the four rims of the earth. Rather, though, than tyrannize, Cyrus sought what was best for the people under his reign. Concerning the citizens of Babylon, and I quote, he says, I brought relief to their dilapidated houses, putting thus an end to their main complaints. Cyrus sought to reestablish all the places that Babylon had ruined. So he looked out at the sacred cities, and he had hopes to restore them. He doesn't mention Jerusalem by name, but hear what he says in this next quote. I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein, and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. This is his main purpose in his own words. This is what he's seeking to do. Cyrus returns religious images stolen by Babylon after he overthrows them. He rebuilds temples and he resettles the people in their places, their homelands. This is a focus for him. Now think of this in contrast to 2 Chronicles 36. If you could turn there with me, 2 Chronicles 36 recounts what Babylon did when they came to Jerusalem. We're gonna start in verse 18, 2 Chronicles 36. It says, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile To Babylon, the remnant, to escape from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Notice the difference here. The tearing down the fire, the carrying away everything precious, killing by the sword. This is what the people of God had experienced under Babylon. And now the king of Persia comes along and says, let them rebuild. But not only let them rebuild, give them what they need to rebuild. Let them resettle. Let them have places again to inhabit in their homeland. It's no wonder that Isaiah 45 says this of Cyrus. He calls him God's anointed there. And if you read in that section in Isaiah 45, it says this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have taken hold of. God is saying I took hold of him, and I instructed him in how he should be a redemptive force in the life of the people of God. You see, Ezra chapter one, verse one, declares that the Lord, the God of Israel, not Marduk, the God of Babylon, was actually the one who stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus to fulfill the prophecy that had been spoken through Jeremiah. That it was actually God who was sovereign. He's saying that here is this polytheistic king. He's looking out and he's seeing all these gods and he's wanting to honor all of these sacred places. But what he didn't realize is that he was an instrument in the hands of the almighty and sovereign God. So if we turn to Jeremiah 25, we'll see that prophecy that he was fulfilling. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 to 12. Jeremiah 25 says, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. Going on to Jeremiah 29, this is the other piece of what was being fulfilled in the word that came to Jeremiah. This is the section just before the famous verses that you're all going to buy during this graduation season. I think we see this verse more than anything in high school and college graduation cards, plaques, memorabilia, but this is what actually comes before the most famous verse that you will see in graduation. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then you know maybe the next verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You're gonna buy it for the graduation card this season. This is in the context of the exiled people of God. Now you know the context when you share that verse with the graduate who's wondering what they're going to do come August. You know the context is the people of God who have witnessed a bloodbath. They have been ripped from their country. They've watched their temple burn. They have watched the sacred elements torn from the house of God. And now they are in Babylon. And this promise comes to them through Jeremiah that, yes, this will last for 70 years. Yes, this will be for a season. But it won't last forever. God has a plan for you. Man, imagine if we could tell each other the promise of God's plans and purpose in the context of chaos, in the context of struggle, in the context of everything falling around us. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, they all affirm that God alone is the author of restoration. God stirred Cyrus to declare freedom, to bring liberation to the people of God, to restore them back to a place of worship. We see this pattern happened the same as when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. They had been there for 400 years as slaves and when God said, let my people go and they were allowed to be free, they were also given things by their neighbors, articles of silver and gold, clothing, things to take with them as they went on their sojourn. In the collective hearts of the people, they would have remembered that. But now here they are in Babylon and Cyrus commands, give them silver and gold, and articles of clothing, and livestock. Let them be given what they need, so to the collective hearts of the people, they are suddenly experiencing, this is our exodus. We are being given the power and strength to leave. So just like that core memory in them as people of God, we were led in exodus out of Egypt, we're now being led in exodus out of Babylon. The question, The the statement from Jeremiah 29, 14, where if you go on to that verse, it says, I will bring you back, I will make a way for you. That's what was resonating in the hearts of the people of God. As they received these things from their neighbors, God had surely made a way for them. God's promise was real for them. The question that we have to ask when we see these things is who is really in charge? And that's the, book that, that's the question the book of Ezra asks, who is in charge here? Cyrus did these things in fulfillment of what Jeremiah's words were spoken. We look around the world now and we see chaos and we see pain and we may wonder, I think this is a question we all have to wrestle with, God's sovereignty. Where is God in all of this? It's difficult for us to find security in God alone. We can unintentionally look to work, to bank accounts, to relationships, to life going the way that we thought it would go. Trust God alone, scripture entreats us. So we as God's people confess God's sovereignty in a world of pain in a world where two families experience cancer and one finds themselves at a graveside service and the other celebrating 10 years of remission. We live in a world where one baby born premature, another baby born premature, parents find themselves with a thriving child five years later, and another family finds themselves with still an empty room. We live in a world where God's sovereignty is a constant question that we face. Mark 15, 34, we see Jesus. At three in the afternoon, he cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I ask you, if the Son of God can be so honest, why can't we? An invitation to us to bring the honest questions, to say, What is going on here? For those of you who have friends in Ukraine or family, you look and you say, why? You continuously cry out, why? And I'm sure the people of God in exile cried out the same. Why? 70 years, why? Why so much pain? We hear it all through scripture, Habakkuk, the echoes of each of the different prophets crying out to God. And yet this story Ezra and Nehemiah tell, a God who called them back, a God who was sovereign in the midst of it, the God who purposed to transform them, the God who offered them a future and a hope. The people of God were trying to rebuild and what we see in this story is that they keep missing the point. That's what we see throughout the whole book of Ezra is that they miss the point. The whole point that God had called the people to is to spread out, to encompass the world, to bless the world, to be a blessing. They were passionate about getting it right, these people of God, yet they kept missing the point. What we see in Ezra chapter one is they were counting bowls when they needed a foundation. What we see is that they looked at all the vessels that felt so familiar and sacred But what are the vessels without God? When I visited and interviewed here, it was actually April of 2016. So this month, Caleb and I are having flashbacks to six years ago. And we remember some of the great people that we met right away. Um, Datha Tickner was the chair of the search committee six years ago. And Doug Herman and Andy Sandiford were the two co-head elders. And as we came to visit and we got the tour and we walked around, we felt so impressed by the devotion to God and the commitment to this church that we saw in them. As we were here, I visited Quest Sabbath School. We kind of spread out that morning, and I got to sit and hear as Doug Herman was teaching. He mentioned this book, And after I got home from the interview, I bought it immediately. It's called, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, A Citizen's Guide to Hope in a Time of Fear. The whole point of this book is to encourage us to believe that we, ordinary people, can make a difference, to inspire that there is reason to hope. As believers, we know that God tells us there's always a reason to hope. But sometimes, if we could be honest for a moment, we could admit that we don't feel hope. It seems, well, sometimes impossible, right? With our families, with our church, with the situations that we're facing. After the pandemic, it's different. Some of us are here in person. Some of us are still online. Some that were very connected are no longer connected, but then there's others that found this church during the pandemic and are getting connected with relationship. What do we do? What does it look like to be the church right now? What does it look like to be the people of God coming back from an exile of sorts? Emotionally, physically, spiritually, to come back after exile We can start talking about normal and we compare to pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. We say this almost felt normal when we talk about situations or this event, it felt pretty normal and pastors, we can get in that conversation. We had a whole pastors gathering this last week and there was a whole circle of us talking about how I feel like I've just been trying to get us back to where we were. What an odd feeling this has been for this whole year. And I started to pray about that question, like where were we before? Where were we now? What does it look like to be the church today? And as I was praying over this, God spoke, and I wrote it down. God said, what if, in order to build what I have planned for you now, you have to let go of what was? What if, in order to build what I have planned for you now, you have to let go of what was? You see, when we read, some of the people were rejoicing and some of the people were weeping when they saw what they were doing with the temple. That was because it all depends on expectations and God is saying, can you have space enough in your mind and heart to see what I'm doing, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to work? God is wanting to do something among us, something new and different and exactly right for right now. What would stop us from seeing it? What would stop you from seeing what God wants you to see in your life and in your relationships and in your work and in your meaning and in your calling right now? If you are somewhere than what you are right now. God's invitation is for you to be exactly where you are right now. Not in the past or somewhere off into the future, but we must be fully where we are right now in order to faithfully step into what God is wanting to bring us into. So how do you reach a goal? How do you reach the next step? Do you remember the term senioritis? Anyone? Okay, for those unfamiliar, senioritis, when you're in high school or college, is when you are done. Yes, emotionally you are completely done, and yet you still have weeks of classes to show up for and do work for. But you feel done. So, there are kids right now in high school and that are graduating college, and they're like, I'm so done. Oh, you are? No, I'm not done. I just feel done, I'm just ready to be done. And we can get that. We get restless to be done, to be moved on to the next thing. But how did you get that diploma? You were tired and you kept showing up. How did you get that degree? One class at a time. How did you build your business? One client at a time. How do you build your house? One brick at a time. One step at a time. One thing after another. We don't have to know the whole faithful path, we just know the one faithful step that God has called us to. So the people of God were called out and they took the faithful step forward, back home back to where the site would be, where God would build. Most of us know what it's like to face what feels like an insurmountable challenge. When we feel that feeling that it's impossible, we start to get feelings of helplessness. How will we do this? How will we make it through the teenage years? How will we make it through this degree? How will we really launch this business? What really will it look like to take on this ministry? We have to remember in that moment who's in charge. We are invited to recognize the sovereignty of God. That everything God calls us to, God gives provision for. Everything God calls you to, God gives provision for. This time it was through King Cyrus. Give them what they need. Even give them the free will offerings, the silver, the gold, give it to them. But it was more than just restoring what was sacred, what was in the temple before. It was giving them new provisions for what God was building then. Everything God calls you to, he will provide you the strength and the resourcing for what you need. So when you face that what feels insurmountable right now, when you're looking at it and you don't feel like you can face another day, just say, I have enough for today for this Bible study, for this conversation, for this difficult financial choice, for this purchase, whatever it is you're doing, you have enough for that next faithful step, for that patient you're going to see, for that person you're going to teach. God will give you what you need at that moment. You see, this is the revolutionary way of Jesus. That we're invited into. It's countercultural. And the people of God were still trying to understand it. You see, they were counting bowls, but we find out later that Jesus counted even the widow's mite. They wanted a temple to reach God, but we find Jesus tore the veil of the temple, giving all access to God. They were proud of the money they had raised, and Jesus turned over the money tables. They were afraid of their neighbors, but they found Jesus dining with them. They were looking at where people came from, but Jesus was looking at where they were going. They looked at the crowd and said, why can't we get this temple built? And Jesus looked at the crowd with tears in his eyes and he said, behold the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail over them. They needed a foundation and Jesus said, behold I am the chief cornerstone. Cyrus said captivity was over but throwing money at such things and saying words are not enough because people carry captivity with us. And so the people of God carried their captivity even after they were free So Jesus came and he said, if I set you free, you shall be free indeed. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see the people of God forgot their calling. They built a temple for God and unbeknownst to them they put God in a box and then they were sad when the box they built for God was disappointingly small. In order to rebuild the way God wanted to, God brought them down to the foundations. Then he reminded them, you are blessed to be a blessing. You are a sweet fragrance among the nations, drawing the people to God. You are my children. I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. In order to go where God is calling us to go, we must let go of where we have been. God has taken us down to the foundations. I know that is true for some of us individuals and for some of us as families, for some of us as a church, we experience it that way, that God has taken us down to the foundations. Someone said to me with tears in their eyes, I've never felt this low. Well, according to Ezra and many others who testify in the scriptures, that is the very best and safest place to be because we then are called to rise up, to trust the only one who is sovereign, the only one who builds the people of God and the church of God, the only one who resources and provides for exactly what we're called to build. This quote I want to share with you is where I will conclude today. It's from Selected Messages, Volume Two, from a person named Ellen White, and she says in this quote, to trust yourself in the hands of Jesus. Do not worry. Do not think God has forgotten to be gracious. Jesus lives and will not leave you. May the Lord be your staff, your support, your front guard, your rearward, This quote reminds you and reminds me today that you are in the safest hands possible. The sovereign God. The sovereign God. The one who is over you speaks to you just like the exiled people of God. The people that felt like there was just chaos all around them. The people who felt, will God truly fulfill the promise made to us? God speaks to you, trust me, trust me. That which I've called you to build, I will resource you for. That dream, that vision, what God has put in your heart, it will come about by God. And I take courage in this. I've never preached a series on the book of Ezra, but this year, to start this year, I felt strongly that we needed to go in some new places. So first Peter, never had looked at that as deeply, never had looked at Ezra this deeply. But as I read through the book of Ezra, I keep finding a church, a message for the post-pandemic church, for a church facing as a whole collectively, Christianity and, and the Adventist church as a whole, facing what feels like insurmountable challenges. The number of young people leaving the this challenge that we're facing as a community, those who became disengaged and haven't returned, these are huge challenges. And yet all we've been called to, all that God has called us to build, God provides for. And that same is true in your family. The same is true in your life. Trust yourself in the hands of Jesus.